Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. The episode today is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Dene Hernandez-Cortez, an economist and professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Uh, she studies environmental justice and the distributional consequences of environmental policy. Hi, Dene. Thanks for joining me today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Um, maybe just to get us started, obviously, you know, the U.S. faces serious levels of inequality on many fronts. Um, there's inequality of income. There's inequality of consumption. Um, there's also uh, inequality in access to health care, education, personal, uh, personal safety. Uh, there's huge inequalities in how the uh, criminal justice, criminal penal system works. And environmental inequality is definitely part of that picture. Um, I think it's fair to say that the field of economics uh, generally has sharpened its focus on questions related to inequality in recent years, um, you know, in various domains. Do you think that's true in the field of environmental economics as well? Has there been more attention to issues around inequality, distribution, and justice uh, recently than, than maybe in the past? Yes, definitely. So we have a lot of, as you said, there are many forms of inequality, but environmental inequality is very particular because, you know, it's very well documented and this is not something new, but it has been documented that disparities exist in many ways, but particularly in where the pollution is located with respect to disadvantaged populations or vulnerable populations. Um, so this has existed in the past and many researchers, including researchers of color, have shown that this is the case. But I think that there has been a recent increase in interest in, uh, from part of environmental economists and economists in general in understanding some of these causes and some of the policy incidents of different various uh, econo economic and environmental policies that could affect pollution and could therefore affect who is exposed by this pollution. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a really interesting review paper that you're one of the co-authors on that uh, reviews some kind of recent advances in the field. And um, I would, yeah, I would recommend folks who are interested in that to take a look. But one of the research questions that, um, you know, maybe we could talk some generally about some of the advances in the field, but one that I found kind of interesting and that I wasn't personally familiar with um, compares environmental inequality or inequality in the environmental domain with inequality generally. Yeah. And that's that strikes me as a pretty interesting research topic. So, um, so some of the papers looked at things like, you know, comparing uh, Gini coefficients, which is of course a measure of inequality um, in income typically, and looking at Gini coefficients with respect to like environmental exposures and comparing that to Gini coefficients with income more generally. So just kind of general inequality in society. Um, so that's pretty interesting. And it seems like at least some of the times environmental inequality is kind of worse, that environmental harms are distributed more unequally than even income, which is already very unequally distributed in our society. Um, and I guess the one thought is just, you know, what do you what do you think about this research? And and you know, kind of normatively, I was trying to think like, what what do we want here? <laughs> actually, like, you know, we have a certain amount of inequality in society. Do we want environmental quality to be distributed like at the same rate <laughs> as income inequality, or do we want it distributed uh, more equally or less equally? What's the what's the right normative framework for thinking about how to interpret these results? This is a great question, and I think it's very hard to to, to, to have an answer that that is very precise because it's a normative statement, right? So these normative statements are difficult to 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 compare without uh, having an analysis of different policies and different policy alternatives. But in general, income inequality has followed different distributions, and what we see in environmental inequality is that. Uh, low income, but predominantly minority communities are the ones that are exposed to more uh, pollution. And it, and this leads to sharp disparities into 
in, in this distribution. So if you look at uh, gradients of, 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 of income versus different levels of the, of these communities on how, uh, on, on how predominantly minority communities live there, uh, you will see that minority uh, minority indicators are even more prevalent than income indicators, and um, that is very that that is a, a very important finding of a lot of this literature. That yes, it's true that income uh, that that low income communities are exposed to more pollution on average, but when you look closely and you look at uh, minority communities, that is even a bigger indicator of that. So that is the first finding that the literature has generally found. And the, the next question on how we compare the, the distributions of income and the distributions of environmental inequality, well, I think that one, uh, the environmental inequality is related to different sources of uh, of inequality, they could be correlated, but there are different sources. So we have uh, siting policies that affect where uh, uh, where polluting facilities are located, and that affects the distribution of pollution in the environment. We also have different uh, uh, we, we we also have different different access to policy making that also affects what policies are implemented and who they target and which environmental policies are, are being implemented. So we have different uh, different policies that are affecting the distribution of environmental inequality that are different from those that are affecting the distribution of income inequality. And so it's really hard to compare both. But in general, what we see is that even across these dimensions of income versus race, you see that minority communities are the most affected by pollution in general. Right. So there's, there's kind of two things going on, right? So there's, or there's many different things going on, yes. <laughs> fair, fair to say. So there's, you're right, there's a correlation between income and, you know, environmental exposure um, or exposure to environmental harms. And in a way, it's, I think it's kind of natural to think that the causal story runs from, say, you know, income to environmental quality, right? Because the idea being, look, wealthier people can afford to move to areas that have cleaner air or that are less likely to have, um, you know, uh, negative land uses nearby and that kind of thing. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that environmental quality has a causal effect on income, right? So there's some research along these lines, I understand that, you know, if you're exposed to lead pollution when you're, when you're young, you know, that can have, a, you know, serious long-term effects on um, all kinds of downstream consequences, including things potentially like, you know, educational attainment, that's going to affect income. And there could be another variable that, and that's kind of what you were saying, is that there's something else, maybe that's policy, that affects both the distribution of environmental quality, or it affects both income and, and environmental quality in some way that leads to a correlation there. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, has there been, what, what is the state of research to try to untangle those different possible causal And then, you know, obviously you raised race too. I want to get, get, get to that as well, but just to think about the income relationship first, maybe. Yeah, this is, this is a great question. And it's often called the chicken versus the egg problem in environmental inequality. And there are a couple of people who have done research in the past related to that. And this idea that uh, low-income communities uh, could be restricted on where to find places to live, those places that they are able to, to access because land could be, uh, land could be cheaper, uh, are more polluted, and if they are more polluted, then they have these other potential effects in the future into what is uh, what are their outcomes. And so it's hard to understand what is the origin. It's either that people arrive to a place that is polluted or not, or people, uh, certain groups arrive there in and, and community and, and these facilities locate where those people are located already. And so we have this chicken and the egg problem. And I think that there's a lot of economics literature that has tried to focus on understanding this origin. It's of course a very hard, uh, very hard question to answer, but there's some literature that has found that it really depends on the type of 
pollution that you're looking at and the type of um, uh, the, the type of pollution that you're looking at and also the geographic the the, geo, the the geography of the United States. So there's some literature that has found it in in Los Angeles, for example, in LA, uh, some refineries arrived when uh, low income and minority communities were already leaving. Uh, so that is something that some literature has found. But in other places of, of, of Southern California as well, we see that this um, that some some uh, some communities arrive to where uh, to places that were already polluted. And it's hard to disentangle. So some work by by Manuel Pastor and other researchers in California have shown that that this chicken and the egg problem is really difficult to understand. But there are some other recent literature that is trying to understand those processes more clearly. So I know that you have had Jonathan Colmer as part of the guest here in the podcast, and, and he has talked a little bit about how these different cycles occur and how moving to opportunity can be uh, can be a way of trying to get away from not only uh, uh, some uh, inequality in income, but also some environmental uh, inequality as well. So we see this in the literature and there are some recent advances for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 as you say, it's not surprising that this is difficult to, to untangle. Any type of these, you know, kind of deep causal questions are tough. It's not like we can run an experiment on yes. any of these things. And so it's going to be difficult. It is interesting to consider that third possibility. So the, it's almost certainly, the, it's just very hard to believe that some relationship from income to environmental quality isn't happening, right? Just because, yeah. you know, people, the way I kind of, say this in my classes, people who have money have lots of nice things, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, that are nicer than the stuff that, you know, people with less money uh, have. And it it's just would be very surprising if environmental quality just didn't work that way in some respects. Uh, but then there's, obviously, as you said, there's citing decisions. Um, the, you know, there's this po really real possibility that, you know, the environmental quality that you're born into has an effect on your downstream, you know, life prospects. So those are all, you know, totally very, very interesting areas of research. But, you know, this idea that there's a third variable that could have, some, I, I, honestly, I just hadn't very considered this all this much, but, you know, just kind of imagine that you start off in a society theoretically, some kind of in, in an imaginary equal society. And then there's, you know, some policymaker that's doling out good things, including money and including environmental quality, and then just preferentially doles out those two things to some people and not others, there's going to be a correlation, but it's because of like the doling out process. I mean, is that, is that plausible? What do you think? Is that, is that a story that the, the community, the kind of research community has considered and would it just be the discrimination in the policy process uh, more broadly or, or is there something kind of specific that, uh, you know, kind of more specific that would lead us to think that that's kind of what's happening is that there's this third variable that's leading the, to these correlations to kind of show up in the data. Yeah, and I, this is a great question. And I think that this third variable, which is a greater number of like policies, in this case, uh, 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 like almost like a decision planner just coming and, and, and distributing pollution or income inequality could, could have different consequences. And I think that how we, these policies, I think that this is going to be a little bit hard to answer, but I think that policies are not uh, being implemented in isolation of the general distribution on where people are living and some of the things that they have faced in the past and some of the inequalities they have faced in the past. And so we are living in a society that is highly unequal in several fronts. And any policy or any potential intervention that could happen could have uh, unequal outcomes just because of all of these historical inequalities. And I think that this is not directly answering the question, but I think that it's important to understand because regardless of how that policy implement is implemented, it may have unequal outcomes because of the fact that there's a, this long history in the relationship of environmental and income and race inequality that is happening in the background. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that 
the, the, the interaction with race here is maybe, maybe illuminating. Um, you know, if it, if it was just an income sorting story where wealthy people go to the places that have higher environmental quality and people with less, who are less well off kind of go to places where it's less expensive to live. And that often means lower environmental quality. Um, you know, that, that wouldn't explain why there's, as you said, there's kind of race is also predictive here, right? So exactly. if you run a, if you run a regression and you're trying to figure out where, you know, what, you know, you're kind of looking at correlations between income and, um, and environmental quality, including race in that, in that regression is going to improve the performance of, of the model, right? Which yeah. is telling us that race is a factor kind of above and beyond income. You know, exactly. I, personally, I've always thought that, that that misses part of the story. You know, the fact that race is so closely correlated with income, like we shouldn't just kind of pass that over as like, oh, okay, yeah. well, we just accept that or something. Um, that itself is uh, is real bad, <laughs> and uh, and you know we should you know that it's own, quote unquote only income helps explain um, some of the variation in the um, in the racial correlations. Doesn't mean it's like not normatively problematic, but in any case, I think it does maybe tell us something about the mechanism, perhaps because there's not really such a clear you know kind of sorting story um, with respect to race as there might be with respect to income. Yeah, um, but there has been some policies that have uh, particularly uh, been uh, trying to exacerbate these disparities in the access to some housing. And uh, I want to point out one important uh, uh, one important um, um, piece of uh, piece of research that uh, Peter Christensen and Chris Timmons have uh, been trying to. To, that, that have published and it has been very interesting and is when you, the, the, the places where people are able to access in terms of where they live mm-hmm. also depends on these characteristics, on their income, but also on their race. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's important to know that if people have a restricted set of alternatives on where they are going to be able to move to, then they also have restriction into which type of environment they are able to even get to live. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yes. So it is very interesting, but these relationships are are really hard to disentangle, and I think that that's why uh, some some of the current environmental literature and environmental economics literature has been trying to understand that. And and it's also uh, at the same time that we have started to understand and leverage some of the incredible data that is collected out there that we can leverage to understand this question. So it, we're in a very interesting point in time to study all of these questions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, just that, you know, that the point that you were just making is, is completely right. And just to, just to emphasize that, that um, obviously there's housing discrimination. And yes. so that um, is going to interact with income. Now, um, just in, a, in the in the vein of our kind of general conversation here about the relationship of income inequality, environmental inequality, and maybe other kinds of inequality. So I'm going to guess, although I, I don't know, and, and this is outside your immediate area of, of research, so it's perhaps not a totally fair question, but my guess is that um, there's going to be other areas like this where that's going to have a kind of almost exactly the same setup. Like you have uh, there's income disparity in access to healthcare. There's income disparity in treatment by the criminal justice system. There's income disparity in um, educational, uh, you know, quality that people have access to, and then race on top of income is is going to be predictive. Even controlling, which is to say, even controlling for income, race. There's still going to be racial disparities, and yes. so that it sounds like, again, environment is kind of just follows the same pattern that we see in these other domains. Definitely, definitely. And I think that one interesting fact about the environment is that any policy that, uh, well, many policies that could target the improvement of the local environment will be place-based in general, right? Mm-hmm. If you are trying to, say, increase access in, in, in to health, uh, to, to hospitals, maybe you do it in a larger, uh, in a larger state or in, a, in the whole country, but sometimes uh, uh, local environmental policies have the potential to really affect the people who are living in those communities. So I think that uh, it's true that environment, inequ- environmental inequality will be 
alongside the, all of these other sources of inequality. But I think it's a little bit different in the sense of how this relationship between some of the siting decisions, some of the, the, the nature of the pollution problem as well. Um, and, and actually, I would like to, to, to mention some part of my research. I, mm -hmm. I, part of my research is also trying to look at these other disparities and how they interact with environmental disparities. So I have one working paper together with Kyle Meng trying to understand uh, what is it? Is it health disparities or is it, uh, or is it environmental disparities that is preventing uh, this uh, trying what what is the, the main factor that is happening and we see it very clearly in California where environmental disparities have definitely been declining if you see to some pollutants not others but if you see some pollutants some of these disparities have been declining but health disparities haven't and so this is very interesting because if we think that environment explains health but we don't. But but we see environmental disparities reducing and health disparities not reducing. Then maybe we're not targeting the right the, the, the right sector, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. it is it is very interesting, and all of that overall is interacting, and it's hard to answer what part is health disparities, what part is housing discrimination, one part is income inequality, but all of them are likely happening in the background. But uh, having these tools of causality that economists often have uh, for analyzing these questions is important to, to leverage and trying to answer these questions. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I want to talk about this PM stuff. I actually want to get back to, there's so many interesting things to talk about because <laughs> um, I, I, I want to get back to this this notion of, you know, what is tied to place and how much inequality is kind of driven by, you know, place and how much of it is driven by other things and, and correlations between characteristics and places. That just strikes me as a really interesting thing to talk about. But anyway, I just, w with respect to that research that you've been, that you were just mentioning, um, you know, one of the, you know, this, your, your, one kind of of your recent papers that I was looking at um, is leveraging this huge decline in particulate matter exposure from the electricity generating sector, yes. <laughs> which is just, you know, we don't celebrate this enough, right? So like, um, maybe you can give us the numbers, but, you know, in the last 20 odd years, there's really been just a staggering reduction in exposure to um, particulate matter, which is a really serious pollutant that causes, you know, is associated with um, uh, premature mortality. So, so maybe we could tell the happy story there, and then, yeah, maybe unpack that that work on um, on the relationship with inequality. Yes, of course. And in this paper, we're uh, it is a paper together with Kaming and Paige Weber, and we're trying to understand what are the main drivers of the reduction of particulate matter coming from the electricity sector. And what we see is that these uh, particulate matter concentrations have decreased a lot, around 89% for the average individual in the US. Right, just, which we should just pause and say that's a 90% reduction. <laughs> and this is between 2000 and 2018 or thereabouts, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, that is impressive in and, of, in and of itself. Because if you compare it to the overall pollution, say all of the potential sources, it doesn't, uh, uh, like all of the other sources have also declined. If you look at the pollution concentrations that you see in monitors that capture all sources, it has also been declining, but we don't see the same rate as in the case of the, uh, of the electricity sector, which is impressive. And that has been a combination of many factors. Some of them are driven by uh, policies that are tra targeting uh, air air quality, such as improvements in emissions intensities, improvements in the technologies that the power plants use, uh, etc. But uh, there's also other policies that are happening. So this uh, change of uh, coal to natural gas and the eventual uh, change of renewables have also probably led to some of these changes as well. We don't look at the at some of this renewable energy, but uh, in terms of this transition from coal to natural gas has also decreased uh, inequality as well. And so this paper is trying to disentangle what are the potential changes uh, of pollution coming from these different sources, but not only in terms of pollution, but also in terms of disparities to that pollution. So we calculate also the the, the how disparities have changed between different uh, 
minority uh, and, and uh, income groups. And we see also different convergences in, uh, in those disparities. So we do see these convergences in disparities as well. Yeah, which is really good news you know, that, that yes. we we see um, you know see disparities going down. Um, but as you note, there's in that's very interesting finding that that doesn't seem to be affecting um, disparities in health. And I guess there could be a couple of different possible stories there. One that would be like an extreme skeptic. I, I'll just articulate it, even though I find it implausible, is that you know environmental quality or air quality isn't affecting anybody's health, <laughs> and so. Um, the fact that you've you know reduced you've improved air quality and you've reduced disparities, um, it just isn't mattering in some sense because the link to health is um, is not there. That I just find very implausible, just because there's such Definitely. a strong uh, evidence base for that. So then, so what the heck's going on? Is it just that there's so many other things that are you know that air pollution is an important component of health, but there's so many other things that affect our health that even if you reduce, you know, when you improve the air, it does impact our health, but you know, it, it's just going to be hard to measure. There's going to be a lot of noise because so many other factors, or is it that? other sources of health inequality have like increased and then made up for the <laughs> reduction in environmentally related health inequality or what, what, what's the story there? What do you think is going on? Well, I, I think that is a question that we are still trying to understand, but I let me tell you that the, the literature has consistently found that uh, improvements in environmental quality lead to improvements in health. So, mm -hmm. It's hard to believe that this is one of the reasons that we're seeing what we see. But one thing that could be the case is that there are disparities in health access that have been very prevalent that prevent people from accessing the care that they need in the case of, uh, of, one, of pollution exposure. And that can be the case. But there's also another uh, strand of literature that tries to understand what is the role of cumulative uh, inequities. Mm -hmm. that could be leading to these disparities. And, uh, and I think that that is one part that, that, that could be happening as well. That is not only exposure to health, but also what is the, uh, the, the, the it's not only the exposure to, to pollution in your census tract, but it could be the, the quality of your house, the level of insulation. Mm -hmm. uh, it can also be what is the type of uh, exposure that you have on a daily basis. Is that changing because of income or race? So, for example, uh, if some groups are more exposed to pollution because they work outdoors, that could be affecting the exposure and therefore affecting uh, health uh, disparities as well. So um, it's hard to believe that it could be uh a story of only the environment. I think that is all of these other things that could be potentially affecting health disparities. What is happening in the background, and uh, hopefully our work in this in this uh, in, in this field will allow us to answer some of these questions. And um, and we're, and we're hoping to, that we are able to disentangle what could be driven by environmental disparities decreasing and what can be driven by other other disparities in health access. Right. Yeah, part of the problem, of course, is that these are time-correlated variables, right? So there's just exactly. so, so much else going on at the same time. So even if we're reducing one source of inequality, it's possible that there's another source of inequality um, that is increasing in the same time, over the same time, and then it kind of washes out when you when you look at health effects. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, very, very interesting, very interesting work. Um, maybe just also we'll kind of, while we're on the subject of, of your recent papers, there's another um, uh, bit of, you know, some of your research that's obviously super relevant, interesting these days has to do with um, the potential um, distributional impacts of market-based mechanisms to control uh, pollution. And so, uh, you know, as you're well aware, many economists favor uh, um, uh, regimes or instruments such as cap and trade programs or um, uh, environmental taxes as a way of controlling pollution because it increases flexibility, leads to lower cost uh, emissions reductions and, you know, for various kind of other reasons. Um, but there's been a consistent um, worry that these programs will lead to uh, hot spots or will lead to increases in environmental um, 
uh, disparities, even if they're good at reducing pollution at low cost, maybe they push the pollution around in some way that makes things worse from a um, justice or distributional perspective. So you've done some empirical work on that. Um, and maybe we could just start with, like, what is the theory for why it would be the case that market mechanisms would be worse than, say, command and control with respect to um, equity? And then, and then maybe talk about what some of your research findings um, have been. Yes, of course. Uh, so first of all, market-based instruments are not, uh, market-based instruments have been, uh, have been favored by, by, by economists for, for many years. And these type of instruments have the advantage that it can lower the cost of achieving an environmental objective, uh, which is great from an efficiency standpoint. But since markets are not prescriptive of where this pollution might be occurring and where we will find these decreases in pollution, the same advantage that we see in terms of cost reduction could lead to environmental disparities by having this reallocation of pollution across the space. And so this is the main question is why, uh, what is the difference between markets and other more restrictive policies in terms of like command and control policies that could be reducing this uh, uh, pollution as well from a more prescriptive manner in terms of trying to to, 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 uh, to have a more predictable outcome on the total pollution that is being emitted. And so markets, uh, you, don't, you cannot see which facilities are going, to be, uh, are going to be reallocating pollution, which would mean that there could be a concern in terms of environmental distribution because some facilities might acquire more permits or might pollute more as a result of the market and this, if it's correlated with where communities are located, then may lead to environmental justice concerns. And so this is the main question that, 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 is, uh, that is occurring. And it's very relevant because several policies uh, uh, push the reallocation of pollution somewhere else and could lead to this uh, environmental inequality per se. And it, and it could be very bad because you, in general, some of these policies are aimed at uh, targeting pollution of one type, and there could be some unintended consequences in the pollution of another type. And in the case of the cap and trade program in California, uh, the cap and trade program in California, which is the one that we are studying in the paper, it started in uh, was introduced in 2013. And in this program, one of the, 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 the main target was to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which are a globally mixed pollutant and thus is not subject to local pollution concerns. However, when these greenhouse gases are often co-emitted with local air pollutants, uh, such as PM2.5, NOx or SOx, that therefore this program while altering where uh, pollution from uh, greenhouse gases is occurring, could also alter where the local air pollution disparities are going to be occurring because these local air pollutants are co-emitted with greenhouse gases. So therefore, it can change the amount of emission, who is emitting them and where they might be emitting, uh, therefore having an environmental uh, justice problem, which is that maybe those facilities that are uh, emitting uh, are emitting more greenhouse gases or, or not might also emit more local pollution, which might lead to environmental justice concerns. So that is some question whether that happened in the case of California. And what we find is that uh, actually the cap and trade program led to a decrease in, in the emissions of some of these pollutants as well as greenhouse gases. And we find that disadvantaged communities, as defined by the California government, experience a larger benefit from those reductions. So we see that California, California's disadvantaged communities actually uh, being benefited by this program and uh, reducing some of these environmental disparities. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a really interesting finding. And as you say, there's you know this. It's, it's a really important issue and it comes up, it's been a huge part of the discussion in California about the cap and trade system, um, whether it's a good thing and, and so on. And in a way it's, as, as you know, you know, it's, it's kind of theoretically ambiguous, right? Yes. Um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. That's the whole idea in a sense with the markets. Um, and, um, 
and it's just, you have to kind of empirically, empirically tease it out. You can model it ahead of time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, um, but then you have to see whether those models are accurate or not. So it's a really big and important public policy finding that actually that it appears the cap and trade program has led to a reduction in, uh, in uh, disparities in, in exposure to these air pollutants of concern. So that's that's a huge, important finding, and hopefully uh, it's getting the attention it deserves in, in California. Um, you know, is there, a, is there a lesson here for, for future um, policy design? I mean, in part because it's theoretically ambiguous and it just plays out the way it plays out, um, is there anything we should be thinking about for, for future uh, efforts, you know, given this relatively happy, you know, happy finding uh, in California, but there's no kind of guarantee that that's going to be the case the next, the next uh, spin of the wheel? Of course, and I think that that this is a great question. And first of all, I would like to say that in the case of our paper, we restricted the facilities that we were examining. So some some different facilities and a different composition that our sample could be uh, could lead to different results. Although we checked compared to other sample composition, and our results are robust. But that's something that I will always like to to caveat. But uh, in general, I think that one thing that it's important to understand about the contribution of this paper and all their policies in the future is that this type of policy could have happened the other way around. Uh, it really depends on the characteristics of the downwind populations and also the characteristics of the facilities. In our case, we saw that the facilities with the larger uh, marginal abatement, uh, uh, the, 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 sorry, the, the facilities with the larger emissions uh, were the ones that were decreasing pollution the most, which is consistent with this idea of a cap and, if a cap and trade program is targeting those that are polluting the most, then if those are the ones that are located uh, close to these communities, then we might see similar, uh, we might see improvement in this area. So that is what, what we consistently find in this paper. And so uh, this is important to consider in the case of other potential implementations that are, that are similar to this. Uh, but in general, I think that it's important to to to, to make a, a really uh, make it very clear that some environmental environmental outcomes that uh, are being targeted by a policy might not lead the desired result for another outcome that it might be directly affecting. So in this case, the the, the pollutant that it was targeted by the program was greenhouse gases. Right, but we also have this other environmental environmental issue, which is environmental disparities. And so, whenever we are trying to reduce environmental disparities, we should also be aware that environmental problems need environmental uh, environmental justice problems need environmental justice policies. Right? We cannot hope that any policy that affects uh, the pollution of one uh, of of one facility may lead to environmental justice. Uh, improvements, and that is something that it's important to consider. So, other policies that are, uh, that have to do with improving the outcomes of these communities are also important to consider. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Although, you know, I mean, part of the 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 I think the happy story again from the <laughs> from from your research is um, when we reduce aggregate pollution. It actually often, again, it doesn't necessarily have to lead to reductions in disparities, but it does seem to be the case that it often does, which isn't super surprising. I mean, if you yes. cut, cut particulate matter by exposure by 90%, it would have to be really horribly distributed, right? I mean, something really bad would have to be ha- happening where, um, you know, where that wouldn't also reduce reduced disparities at some, at some level. I mean, certainly, so there's like, and there's just a lot of interesting moving parts to that. Like um, if you say you cut exposure um, to some pollutant by 90% and disparity doesn't change, right? So you go from where folks were, it was, you know, um, you know, you go from a a situation where say you have two populations, uh, uh, less well-off and more well-off and, you know, the more well-off people were being exposed to 50 units and the less well-off people were being exposed to 100 units. That's pretty bad disparity. Yeah. You cut that down to, you know, from 50 to five for the 
wealthy people and from 100 to 10 for the less wealthy people. I mean, that's the disparity in a sense hasn't changed, but everybody is just so much better off in that, in that kind of circumstance. Um, I guess the question is, how should we think about that? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what is that? You know, should we be happy with that outcome? I mean, everyone in the less well-off community is much better off. They went from 100 to 10. They're also in the less well-off community way better off than the well-off people were before the policy, right? Because that's a, a, a change 50 to 10. Um, and so that seems like a very happy story. You know, but we still, I think, would have re- kind of it wouldn't quite sit altogether right because the policy was good in that it reduced everybody's exposures by a lot, but it didn't kind of address this inequality problem. Yeah, how do how do you? Yeah, obviously this is a purely normative question. There's nothing really <laughs> empirical about it, but like how how do you how do you think about um, the normative stakes of 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 that kind of scenario happening? Uh, yeah, well, this is a fantastic question. Uh, I think that the, 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 I mean, I think that what, what you're mentioning is really true. Uh, it's not only caring about how much exposure is being reduced in aggregate, but there's also concern about the inequality per se and the resulting inequality at the end of the policy. And I think that the, the, I think that there there are other things happening at the same time, and I think that some other policies might might be similar, might have similar stories in this sense. There are some policies that might be uh, that that might be reducing pollution more, and other policies might not. And having these two alternatives is always hard to come. Uh, it, it's hard because you can only in in the case of our paper and the case of many papers, you can only compare. What happened to the policy before and after? You cannot say what would have been a better policy that could have reduced more or that could have gotten rid of this this inequality, right? So I think that that is a very that 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 is something that that is limiting in that sense that a lot of these these papers are all only able to compare the before and after, and so for us looking at this reduction might be great, but we never know what is the potential other alternative mm-hmm. that could have happened in the background. So that is the first thing. And the second thing is why is it I, I, that I think it's also important and we haven't mentioned in this discussion, partly because, you know, we haven't studied this, but uh, what is the process to which we decide which policy is the one that we're implementing is also important. And I think that sometimes there is one uh, important fact there, which is, uh, are the communities liking that policy? Do they think that it's working? And so I think that that is also another thing that, that could be happening there. Now, in a normative sense, how do we feel about that? Well, first of all, I think that any improvement in environmental, environmental quality for uh, these communities that have experienced all of these disparities in the past is, is good. But at the same time, what are we left with? Are we left with more uh, or less inequality? Well, that could also be an undesirable outcome per se. Maybe what we want is just to get rid of all inequality altogether. And so uh, I think that that's also important to consider. Right. Yes, great. So yeah, and there's a lot of important stuff in there, including questions around process, which of course the environmental justice community has uh, consistently emphasize it's not just about uh, results; that it's about inclusion in the process, and um, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that uh, as as well. Um, yeah, maybe let's just focus on that for a second. So, 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 has there been research on that question? I mean, it's a little bit outside the standard uh, set of questions that economists normally ask. Uh, mm-hmm. Economists tend to be very outcomes oriented, very yes. kind of consequentialist in their normative views and very outcomes oriented in terms of the empirical questions that they study. Um, so is this a, is this something that environmental economists have asked about is, is process and are there metrics for process? Are we interested in people's perceptions? Are we trying to develop kind of some kind of objective notion of what kinds of processes are good? Um, yeah. Where, where is, where's is the field on, on these questions? 
Yeah, so these questions is more, uh, you're totally right that there's two questions happening here. One is the what is the distributional outcome at the end? The other one is what is the process and what is the procedural justice, whether people are being considered or not? And I think to that sense, there have been some papers that look at some of these issues. So for example, who is involved in the decision process? But in general, those tend to be very hard to answer, and there hasn't been a lot of this, uh, a, a lot of this research. Um, there's there's a couple of papers that have shown that the um, that that uh, the um, that that the process is important, definitely. But in a way that we can focus in an outcome of the process, I don't think there has been uh, some papers looking at that. I could be wrong, but uh, it is also an important thing. And I think that in the paper uh, where we uh, where we analyze some of the literature, we we leave it we leave it very clear that that could be an important contribution for economists, which is how is procedural justice and these uh, differences in the access to the political process. Uh, be determining uh, the total outcomes is one of the important questions to answer in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, and that should make economists uh, relatively more comfortable, right? Because there's still an outcome orientation, right? It's still the exactly. question of how does the process affect the outcomes? There is a kind of an outcome independent element of process as well that, you know, um, when you even if the process leads to exactly, you know, some kind of benign dictator has, you know, uh, uh, the same outcome as a democratic and inclusive process, we might still favor that latter process, even entirely apart from effects on outcomes. Um, but yeah, that's that's a hard question, I think, for economists to try to get at. Yes, and, and I think that there are some tools that, that we can get at and trying to, again, disentangle some of these causality questions. Uh, we have some tools for that, but it's in general a hard question to answer. And I mean, that doesn't, that shouldn't restrict us, right? Trying to focus on how we answer it, maybe just having a description or, or, on, on these different outcomes and how uh, different access to process, uh, to, to decision-making processes uh, make difference or not could be just really good to describe this, this differences per se. Yeah. So um, maybe just like returning a little bit to the uh, th themes that we were talking about earlier, which is the, the role of place in environmental mm -hmm. justice and environmental inequality, where this just strikes me as a really interesting interesting feature of, of this uh, work and, and really the way that inequality generally is tied to place. Um, you know, in a way, it's as you mentioned, it's true that the environment is very place-based. You don't take the yeah. air around with you, right? But yeah. education is very place-based. Um, access to healthcare is very place-based. Um, uh, personal security and policing is very place-based. And all of those, um, you know, uh, different kind of facets of life are very unequal in, yeah. in our society. Um, and so one possible uh, response to this, right, is, well, let's focus on places. <laughs> let's yeah. uh, kind of comprehensively, you know, improve school quality and improve environmental quality and um, improve access to healthcare. But there is then you run into this sorting problem, which is that, which goes by another word in, in many contexts, which is gentrification, right? Is that when mm -hmm. you go in and you kind of change how a place functions, it often, that, that can lead to changes in the composition of the people who are there. Um, rents go up, uh, prices go up in general and, um, and people sort around that. Uh, so do, do you, I'm just curious if you have thoughts about this in general as someone who studies these issues. I mean, obviously it goes to the heart of, you know, how do we address environmental inequality and inequality generally if, if you know, every time we kind of, if we orient ourselves towards these place-based um, improvements or place-based interventions, um, you know, there's a kind of the sorting mechanism, um, gentrification that happens, uh, that just, it seems like a bit of a treadmill that we could never get off. And I'm, yeah, I'm just curious if you have thoughts about what kind of policy instruments we might consider to, to deal with that. Uh, yeah, this, this is at the core of many of the current questions that people are facing, how those changes in, in the quality of an outcome might change the probability of people moving, sorting, and um, 
it is hard to answer per se what are the the what are the policies that could could lead to this uh, gentrification or not because they are hard to they are hard to be an, uh, to be answered in general because you need a lot of detail on the people living there. You need to know where they are deciding to live uh, over time. You also need to be uh, exposed to a shock that is particularly big enough that is changing the 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 amenity and that leads to to, to this sorting. Uh, but in general, I think that it's important to understand the, the 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 role of pollution per se and whether that is incentivizing people to to move, because then you can then understand which policy might be better. So, for example, if you have a policy that is simply improving uh, pollution and, uh, and and people are restricted on where they can move or not, then it might not be desirable because if if people ended up trying to move, then they are restricted of where they were end up uh, after moving, right? So I think there are a lot of interaction between these, uh, between different policies happening that we should be aware of. Now, in general, uh, gentrification has been, uh, uh, in general, gentrification has been linked to changes that have been uh, very that, uh, of very big changes of pollution. So there's a very nice paper by, by Lalama and Elaine Hill and Alicia Cassidy that is looking at brownfield remediation and how that did not uh, change, uh, that did not change who was sorting away where those places were being, um, were, were being cleaned up. And the main reason is was that Yes, it was a change in, in, in the environmental quality, but it was not such a big change mm. that there was uh, this movement. So I think that it depends a lot on the policy. And I think that for us to be able to find uh, that it's actually affecting migration, we have to see uh, a policy that is changing the environment a lot. Mm. So we can improve the environment, but not too much. <laughs> well, uh, I... I that, that I think that that is not a fair conclusion, but uh, I think that uh, it just leads to these other policies that are happening in tandem. Is it housing policy? Are people restricted because they don't have enough income to move? Uh, is it an income story? And again, all of these things are interlinked, but uh, it is very hard to not think of them in tandem. Yeah. Um complicated stuff but um, but obviously really really important so maybe just changing tax a little play a little bit there's this kind of what I think of as almost the inverse of um, concerns about the distribution of environmental quality which is concerns about the distribution of the cost of um, improving environmental quality so um, obviously this this plays a massive role in debates about um, about any environmental um, measure that you could imagine is there's questions about um, not only the aggregate costs, but also the distribution of those costs. Yeah. And so, um, you know, kind of on climate change would maybe be the, the clearest uh, contemporary example where, um, you know, there's concerns that if we implement serious carbon policy, that that's going to lead to increased electricity prices, which is going to be regressive. Um, there's geographic distribution. Um, there's um, distributional issues around the economic sectors that are going to be affected uh, by decarbonization. So, um, yeah, so I, so I guess one, one broad question is just within the field, um, you know, what's, what are some of the, I mean, this is kind of these theoretical things that have been well known for a long time. I don't know if there's been, you know, progress on any empirical questions, but but generally the degree to which um, this is seen as the same research program, right? Just about the distribution of regulatory costs and regulatory benefits in the environmental domain, or you know whether it really we see kind of a bifurcation of the questions that people are interested in, folks who are more focused on environmental quality and distributional issues there. And then um, to the extent that there are folks interested in the distribution of the cost of improving environmental quality. I think that they should be part of the same discussion. Uh, I don't think that they can be thought of in isolation. I think that they are mutually informative, especially because we're in a point where there has been these concerns about environmental justice and they are important concerns. And, uh, and I think that in general, uh, there's a lot of uh, 
the, the cost of environmental policies are also important. So I think of thinking them together, uh, it's good. Um, particularly in the context of climate change, because the costs are very heterogeneous and very unequally distributed across populations. And we shouldn't be, uh, we should be aware of those, uh, of this distribution, while we also try to think about what are the costs of the policy per se. Yeah, the, of course, in the climate change context, there's also the intergenerational distribution of exactly. of, um, of costs and um, of costs and benefits. And I, I wonder, as a, as a scholar of environmental justice, is that something that you you know you, that that you think is again under the same rubric? Um, you know, sometimes I mean, in some ways, it's like a lot. I mean, obviously, a lot of environmental questions have very long time horizon mm-hmm. uh, time horizons associated with them, even traditional environmental pollutants, not just greenhouse gases, it often takes a long time for a policy to be implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the people who live in a community when the policies adopted aren't necessarily the people who will be living there when the policy finally kind of comes to fruition. Um, is that something that, you know, that, that you think about, that you worry about, or can we, can we abstract away from that at some level and, and kind of think of the people of today representing this, this, their kind of, <laughs> their same community, like there's a kind of a continuity in the communities, even if the people are turning over? Uh, definitely, there's a very important generational component. And I think that this generational component is also linked to this inequality, the present inequality, because as we have seen, the outcomes of the same generations that you had before affect your outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about the future and the, <clears throat> the future outcomes of the generations that are to come uh, are not independent of what is happening right now, particularly in this distributional in this distributional aspect. So if we continue to face these disparities in environmental uh, environmental outcomes, I it's pretty sure that we will see them in the future as well. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's a kind of a self-perpetuating element to some of these um, some of these inequalities. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, so I think maybe this will be the, the kind of the final question I'll leave you with. This is um, uh, is kind of a bigger picture question, maybe, but it relates to the point you were just raising, which is the, the maybe the self-perpetuating nature of some amount of inequality, including environmental inequality that, you know, decisions that were made 50 or 100 years ago or longer, like, you know, or even over a very long time horizons, kind of um, just perpetuate in some sense that, that the level of inequality, or at least some features of the, of the inequality landscape are not really the result of conscious decisions that are happening now, mm-hmm. um, certainly not decisions intentionally to perpetuate that inequality, but, um, but they just kind of occur as a, as a consequence of, let's say, people investing in their kids' education and people who have more money have more money to invest in their kids' education, right? And so their kids are gonna be in a better position to, um, you know, to, to attain in the education system, to, to earn higher incomes. And when people are doing that, they're not intentionally trying to lock in or perpetuate uh, inequality, but their their behaviors certainly are doing that. There's no, I mean, it's very hard to, to see that that's not a consequence of those decisions. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just curious what, what, you know, what you think kind of normatively about that, or is, is that just outside the, the research agenda? I mean, in some sense, you know, this could be happening in the environmental context as well, that there's this kind of, in some, like a locked in or um, past, be, even explicitly discriminatory practices that just perpetuate forward in time without and will perpetuate forward kind of indefinitely without some kind of intervention. Is there a way to identify those and separate those from where we're kind of actively causing um, new uh, new inequality that um, you know that that wouldn't have been there except for our decisions today? Yeah, and I I think that that's this is all very important, and I know that some of the the consequences of the outcomes that that we're seeing today are the result of some of the decisions in the past, some of them intentional, some of them not. But what I can say is that in general, in the sense of environmental inequality, we are aware that some of the tools that we have used in the past have worked. Uh, This meaning 
uh, improvements in air quality generally tend to benefit uh, the general population overall, but also uh, sometimes the places that are the most polluted, mm-hmm. therefore benefiting and uh, improving environmental, dis- uh, well, reducing environmental disparities. So I think that the, the individual decisions that were made in the past have an impact now. And I think that that's even more uh, of, of, a, of a reason as to why to create public policies that could benefit and reduce disparities in the future, because these decisions matter for the populations living there and will uh, have an impact in the future as well. All right. Well, um, uh, thanks so much for the for the conversation. This has been a really interesting chat and, and thanks for all of your um, incredibly important work in this area. These are all very, very um you know, vital questions, and they uh, no doubt going to continue to have a huge influence over our uh, discussions of environmental policy for, for years to come. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.